You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sitting down with Sam Whitaker for episode 23, co-founder and co-CEO of Mural Health. We learn about a common feature of vertically integrated businesses that bring together different areas of expertise or skill sets to create a single product. Sam, thanks for joining us on First and Human. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. We know your story with Mural Health well, but we'd love to hear the background and what got you to, to start the company. So, I mean, I guess that the origin story of Mural Health, it's hard for me not to start with my entry into the clinical trial space. I was a product manager at a payments company, a fintech business called eCount a long time ago. This was in 2007. I was in my 20s trying to figure out who I was and what I was going to do in life. I had a um, instinct that starting a business was the thing to do. And I was a product person and I can't say that it was a super well thought out idea, but it just seemed like something to try. And I think that we entered, we meaning me and the other people that founded Greenfire, and this starts with the origin story of Greenfire, my first company. We wanted to create a payments product that did something additional than just moving money and created more value for a specific industry. And this is how we would have described it at the time. Today, I think people would call this a vertically integrated payments business, but that was not a buzzword at the time. I think the way that we approached figuring out what business to start was very much how a chef might enter into a kitchen and look in its cabinets and find what ingredients were there. And then based on what ingredients existed in the cabinets, decide on what he or she was going to make, as opposed to getting a recipe and going to the store to get the ingredients that are required to create a certain dish. And so at the time, me and my co-founder, JP, who also happened to be one of my longest friends, we knew a little bit of something about payment technology. We thought we knew more at the time than we probably actually did, but we thought we knew enough. The third co-founder of Greenfire was my wife, Jennifer, who was a salesperson who was selling other services and tech into what she would have called at the time the life sciences space, but was really clinical trials. Naturally, this was one of the first industries that we thought, is there an opportunity for us to build a payments product that could do more than just move money. And I knew a little bit about clinical trials. I worked as a site coordinator when I was in college as a work-study position. And by site coordinator, I was really more of a site coordinator's assistant doing the administrative work that a site coordinator didn't want to do. Part of that was transcribing paper diaries, putting them into Excel sheets, which is a landmine. Imagine having a hungover 20-year-old guy transcribing the clinical data. I also helped process payments for reimbursements and stipends at Penn for women who were participating in this study. When I went to interview at eCount, I'd never been a product manager before. I came out of transactional finance. I was an investment banking analyst and a private equity drone in my early part of my career. Not to say that all private equity people are drones, just the junior ones, I guess. So anyway, I was I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a product manager. This is what the job is that I'm going to interview for. And I was like, I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I figured I should probably go to the interview with a list of new products that I could create, which is actually now that I'm looking back on it, like if I was interviewing a product person and they came to me with 10 new products, I'd probably be pretty amazed actually at that interview. And the last product I'd put on the list was clinical trials payments product. I met with one of the founders in this interview. I was like, let me show you some of the products that I came up with. And we mentioned clinical trials. 
And he said to me, oh, we tried this, but it's too difficult. And I thought to myself, okay, he obviously knows what he's talking about. What do I know? But it was you know, a good idea probably, but I didn't test it out or anything. I got the job, obviously. So yeah. So anyway, I had this like moment when my wife and I were on our first wedding anniversary. And we came out of this store and I like, turned to her and I said, I'm going to start a payments company. And, you know, I would say things like this periodically. And I think she was kind of like, oh, that's cool. Sure you are. You know, you're constantly kind of saying you're going to do these big things. And But I like meant it this time. And so we did, you know, JP and I quit our jobs and we started building the Clin card, which was the first participant payment technology to ever enter into the clinical trial space. The financing story in that company is like really interesting. Looking back on it, it's like absolutely legendary actually. This is like a niche business and nobody talks about it or knows about it. The first year we financed with an Apple-rama, and I'll give you a dollar if you have ever heard of this before. An Apple-rama, A-P-P-O-R-A-N-A. Uh, I've never heard of that in my entire life. So JP and I, well, it was really JP's design, but we ended up applying for 15 to 20 credit cards that all had 0% balance transfers at the same exact time. And I don't even know if this is possible anymore, but it was back in early 2008. And so all of the credit cards like essentially queried our credit at the basically at the same time. So none of them knew that we were applying for the other. And we got all of them. So we got like $70,000 worth of 0% debt from these credit card balance transfers. And they all came with this blank check that you're supposed to use to pay off your credit card bill. Our first angel round ended up being $300,000. A hundred came from the three founders. And then the other 200 came from three angels. That was raised in February of 2009. So this is right after the financial world came to an end. And that was really difficult to raise. We were 27. We we're trying to build a vertically integrated payments company in an industry that nobody paid attention to or knew about, right? But it worked. And I think that the really cool thing about this whole story is that it set this insanely bootstrapped tone for what we were about to do. And so in any event, we ended up building a vertically integrated payments business in clinical trials. You know, started off with the Clint card. It was wildly difficult, especially in like the early stages where we were evangelizing why a generally conservative industry should try something new that they've never done before. And there's this HR like recruiting storyline and financing, and there's all sorts of evil villains that entered this story and, and some heroes too. And we created a couple other products and, and Greenfire is still out there today. Like you can go check it out. And so JP and Jennifer and I left that business on a full-time basis in 2016. Jennifer stayed on the board until, and JP and I, you know, went off to, to do different things until that business finally exited and all of us were gone. We weren't shareholders anymore. And that happened in July of 2021. This is all public, but it, that sold for about 1.1 billion. We started that business the first day that JP and I went to work. I was in my home office. I had a desk and JP had a desk that had three legs. My home office didn't really have heat. It was in the middle of winter. And neither one of us ever imagined that would be the outcome. You know, we were hoping that it would be a good company or maybe we would make some money too. But nobody ever like used bees when we were talking about end results. I can't go into too many details about why JP and I left. I mean, or, or maybe more specifically why I left in 2016, just to be polite, I guess. It wasn't expected. That was not part of the plan. And ultimately, it was a function of a disagreement. And so when, when it was time for Greenfire to be sold again, I thought of that as like an opportunity. There's a handful of investors that approached me to get help understanding, you know, what the opportunity was in the event that they were to buy the company. I was like particularly interested in like the product 
problem. I, I knew that they were like targeting a billion dollars and that was like the goal. How do you get it from a billion to three billion or five billion or whatever the private equity firm wanted to generate in terms of returns? And I found that to be really fascinating, right? You know, I think my DNA is probably more of like a product or product strategist type of brain, right? And so I came up with a strategy. I think my hope was that one of my private equity friends would win this deal and then I would get back involved, maybe at a board level, but in a way that helped to guide product strategy to see Greenfire do really well and get to who knows how big and just go on the adventure that goes along with that, right? And that sounded like a fun thing to do. None of my private equity friends won and I just figured, okay, this is the end and that's all good. It was an awesome journey and there was an amazing result and I was 41 and I thought, you know, hey, we'll see what the universe has in store. Like something will pop up and we'll see where life goes. And then in the fall, one of the guys that worked for one of the private equity firms called me back, Jason Dong, my co-founder now at Mural Health. He called me and we were talking about a couple of other things and he essentially asked me if I'd be willing to start a company to build the product strategy that I had in mind for Greenfire. Essentially, one thing led to another and I agreed. From my perspective as an entrepreneur, there is like a unique opportunity for a new company to enter into this space. It's a sizable market opportunity. It's got relatively shallow penetration. It has a single market leader that has never been challenged in the past, which I think has led them to get lazy about innovating. They've never self-disrupted. And this creates an opportunity for a worthy competitor to enter with a 10x better product and then go out and see if you can capture some market share. And then bonus points, if you can come up with a strategy that helps you to do something more than just offer a second vertically integrated payments product, right? And so for Muralink, I mean, launched it, meaning we started it in January of 2001. And so it was me and Jason, and then the third co-founder, Sean Malochik, who was the first engineer at Greenfire. Sean was the guy that I built the clean card with, and I would scratch some things down on a napkin and he would go and build it. And he'd come back and say, is this what you meant? And I'd be like, you're like 50% of the way there. Here, let's iterate. He's always behind the scenes, like building stuff. I love the fact that he's on this with us and working on it. Our goal here was essentially to create a next generation participant payment solution. You know, this is like effectively what we would have done if Sean and I were still at Greenfire and somebody said, hey, go self-disrupt. And so I would have scrapped the clean card and I would have built Muralink, which is what we're doing now, which gave us an opportunity to essentially enter into this space with what I would consider a, a better product in every way. I believe that there is actually a really valuable strategic opportunity by leveraging the participant payment in order to drive engagement with the participant. When I say participant, I mean patients and caregivers, which then allows us to start to deliver strategic value to the sponsor. And in this case, it comes in the form of participant retention, patient retention. And then there's some other interesting things that we can do with the tech in order to drive adherence or protocol compliance, and then also maybe less well-known way to accelerate enrollment rates by having a positive impact on the conversion of essentially leads in the recruitment funnel. And so I was actually recently in a sales meeting and kind of talking about the value of leveraging the, the payment touch point with the participant. And I had a sponsor say, this doesn't apply to us. We've never lost a patient because we didn't have the right payment product. What I told her, and this is part of the core thesis, is that there are essentially two touch points between the study and the participant that the participant actually cares about, like genuinely cares about. And the first is treatment, 
I would imagine that the vast majority of participants come to a study as a result of some issue, some terminal, some maybe less or more benign, but some issue, you know, and that's obviously not true for every study. So I think treatment is the primary and then payment is the second, you know, and that could be stipends, but it will also be in many cases just simply reimbursement, right? So, hey, I put out 50 bucks to come and participate in your study, parking, travel, bus, car, whatever. I need that 50 bucks back. And so this gives us like an opportunity, right? To use payments as a hook. You have their attention. Now, can we do something more for them that will also have a positive impact on the study? And this is the core spirit of what we've built with Muralink, right? Like we've built a, essentially a tech product that is meant to deliver features and benefits to the participant. If we do a really good job, we'll make their lives delightful. And as a result of that, if we can accomplish that goal, we believe that a business case gets fulfilled right. for the buyer of the product because they receive value in the form of retention, adherence, enrollment rates. And that is the simple concept. It's so exciting seeing you guys build and develop. It's quite rare that someone is building in the clinical trial space with the agility that you guys do and with the eye towards a high NPS experience. It seems for whatever reason, the bar is low in clinical trials. I want to talk about the hook into patient experience and subject and participant experience. Lots of really exciting stuff. I also want to talk about how hard it is. We looked ourselves at building patient payments. It's not easy. Your founder at Ecount said the same thing. Maybe explain a little bit why it's so challenging, international components, compliance, even the core infra is not the easiest thing to go build. I think a lot of people think it's just Stripe and hook it together and you're good to go. It's nowhere near that, right? Apparently, it's not that easy to build. Because, <laughs> right. Yeah. Because if it was, then Greenfire wouldn't be the only company of scale out there. And this space would be more deeply penetrated, the market opportunity. Part of me struggles with this. I've been asked this so many different times by VCs, private equity guys, one particular corporate development guy. The answer is like the big companies will just go out and build this. This isn't that hard. You know, ultimately, I think that there are two really interesting moats that exist for Greenfire and now for Mural Health that I think are the, the reason why this ends up being really difficult for different companies, right? And so at first, I was wondering if this is just like a natural feature of a vertically integrated payments business, right? Where you have essentially two industry expertise or skill sets coming together in the form of a single product. In our case, it's clinical trials and a fintech, right? But it could be fintech. I know a guy that works for a vertically integrated payments business in the restaurant industry, or there's another one whose name I forget that is essentially integrated into, I don't know what industry this is, but like the church industry, like it helps churches collect donations from their parishioners, which is like a really interesting application. In our space though, interestingly enough, both of the industries that are being integrated are regulated. And so restaurants aren't regulated. Well, I mean, I would consider them not regulated. There's some regulation, I guess. But most of the industries that have vertically integrated payments business, like the fintech side of this, but you are typically working inside of a non-regulated space. And I think that the dual regulation probably is enough to prevent your typical e-clinical businesses from entering into the fintech space. And I think it's also why fintech businesses aren't more commonly entering into the clinical space to like effectively compete with Greenfire. We've seen some fintech businesses like Payoneer is one and uh, HyperWallet's another. I actually was just talking with a big bank that had said, oh, we competed against you for some study or at some sponsor or whatever. And this is like one of the top maybe three banks in the US. I think there's also like a component of this that like, you know, you need to like understand how to build a user interface that accommodates a workflow and, and makes the user's life easy? And does a fintech business understand the patient experience and what the nuances are that 
are important to the buyers, right? And I think that those things are really, really difficult for um, either the fintech business to learn about clinical trials or vice versa. I think there are also some like, especially as I get into building Mural Link, which really doesn't rely on a debit card platform at all. There's some like different challenges that we've uncovered when we are focused in on a variety of different payments, especially using digital wallets and different electronic payment delivery methods, which I think would surely turn off most e-clinical businesses who end up looking into this, like especially when you get into regulation surrounding money transmission or money services businesses, right? Like, and these are things that like you won't know about until you dig in, but they're, they're hurdles to overcome. And I suspect that this is ultimately what turns a lot of people off. The competitors that we did see at Greenfire ended up being products that did not own or build their own fintech backend. And this was ultimately a wildly beneficial moat for Greenfire because they were able to always beat out competitors that were essentially like just linked up with like a Stripe or like a program manager that offered a generic reloadable debit card in their case. Let's talk about the second time founder experience. I feel like there's all kinds of stats and anecdotes you can look to. First is, you know, second time founders, not necessarily a higher success rate than first time founders for whatever reason. I guess, you know, it's maybe some version of hubris. You feel like you know how to find product market fit and it's just as challenging the second time around as the first time around. But then you've got these kind of anecdotes, right? Eric, from Zoom, pretty much the same business builds it the second time around. Huge outcome. Have to think you probably think of yourself maybe in that second camp. You're going after a space you really know. You've got the customer relationships. You know the product service area well. How do you think about kind of the second time experience and what have you done differently to build your health for success? So I'm not all that confident in my ability to do this a second time, right? Like, which is likely a function of my own personality and probably a function of the underlying psychology that exists in my brain. You know, I think that there were like moments of real brilliance and skill and willpower the first time around, but there were also moments of just straight luck. And I can't quantify the percentage of each of those things. But without the moments of luck, it doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And so I think about that and I wonder, can I do it again? Like, and we don't know. Only time will tell, right? And that's how I felt going into this. And I still kind of feel that way. Although like every day I feel a little bit more confident as I collect data points. Starting this business the second time, especially, I mean, this is, I think that if I take a step back, I'm a second time founder, I'm building a product that's essentially competitive to the market leader, which is a product that I built. And so I probably have somewhat of an advantage in that regard relative to somebody who is entering new. This is an industry that I've also known really well. So I know a lot of the nuances and I also have relationships, right? And I think that I probably underestimated when we started this business, how valuable all of that experience really was. And I think that as we went through the last year and as we continue to like navigate new opportunities, every once in a while, I will reflect on how we're doing relative to how I remember it being at Greenfire. And I can tell you, it is wildly easier. I mean, way, way easier in every single way. So from like building an MVP to hiring, raising money was not a difficult task. The thing that I'm like most flattered about was how responsive customers and partners would be to like me reaching out. And we've had, I won't say the names because I don't want Greenfire to know, <laughs> but we had like a, call it a top five 
pharma who somebody got one of our marketing emails and then forwarded it to somebody else. And they wrote to me and said, we know you from Greenfire. We loved working with you. We'd really love to hear what you're building. And this is a person that I have no idea who this, awesome. this was. I mean, you know, we don't get an email like that every single day, but I was like, wow, really? You knew Greenfire? You knew what we did? Like, wow. I think this is part of the personality that exists inside of me that probably like I have a lot of fear of failure, uh, like for no good reason. Like there's not really like a consequence, but like I really fear like letting people down, letting the co-founders down, letting the early employees down, letting the investors down. You know, all those investors will be fine if I blow it, but I have an anxiety about it. It helps me to to work and drive and and but in any event, yeah, like second time, this is like super easy. Doesn't mean that it's gonna work by any stretch. You know, I still need to sign contracts and then once we get some opportunities, I need to deliver and make the customers thrilled to be working with us, right? And so so there's still work to be done before I can like declare victory. We're like so early, but I'm feeling confident that we'll be able to get there. We're absolutely thrilled to be partnered with you guys and to be building the future of clinical trials together. And I've done tens of these podcasts now and by far and away beaten everyone else with the best artwork and backdrop. So uh, thanks for joining us on First and Human. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 